Yeah. So my dad started listening to the podcast. What? Oh no. Yeah. No. Well, he's he's super cool. Like I, oh, we're okay. very much alike. He basically hates everything. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so he he started with the Reagan ones, and he like called me. He was like, he was like, I don't understand what's happening because he was listening to the cold open. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, Am I listening to the right thing? And I was like, Yeah, just like give it give it a minute. Just wait, it'll make sense eventually. <laughs> if that's not the perfect description of our podcast, look, just give it a minute. Just give it a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, then he ended up loving it, but he was like, Yeah, I don't I don't understand what's happening at the beginning. I'm like, that's not the point, you know. <laughs> I'd be worried if you did, Dad. <laughs> so you give everybody like the worst part of the podcast up front, really horrify him, and then it's all uphill from there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no way. We actually do know stuff. Dude, our Discord has been fucking popping. I know. I've been fucking <laughs> yeah, it's getting pumped. weird. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I'm still kind of sad no one could debate me on the Rasputin penis thing. How could <laughs> I didn't you? know how to. Yeah. <laughs> I like immediately took the winning side of the argument. No, so that discord is getting really fun there's like there's a good ratio of like shit posting to like people asking really good questions and like discussion and shit like it's solid you remember i told you i went into that dsa uh fucking trivia night randomly out of nowhere the other day yeah i was just i was just drinking wine my girlfriend was out of town i had nothing better to do and i was like this sounds fun i've i've never really sat down and talked with a bunch of dsa members and i was like this would be a a fun learning experience i'll be i'll be nice and the twitter said free for anyone to join you know you don't have to be a member so i jump in there but apparently i was the only non-member but since i had a decent setup they you know put everybody into teams and my team is like oh you got a professional setup like you clearly know what you're doing and you talk good so we're gonna so you're the captain now and i'm like dog i'm not even a dsa member <laughs> they're like what are you doing here and i was like i'm here to fucking play trivia dog. <laughs> it's, we, yeah. and like uh so the, this old lady there was like asking me questions she's like well what is your political alignment and i was like man and she's Ooh. like she's like you know in her 60s and i was like ma'am i'm, I'm a tanky and you know she's like oh god that is a verbatim she's like oh god and she goes well you know i've never met a tanky who called themselves a tanky so you must have <laughs> you must have a sense of humor <laughs> I was like, ma'am, if there's one thing I'm equipped with, it's that. And uh, we, we ended up having such a good time. But anyway, the reason I mention it is because you made that Scientology comment. And, dude, it really felt like it. It's like everything they're saying is like, you know how Scientologists, they talk in secrets, but you can't have the secret yet. Like, you got you to gotta get in mm-hmm. before, he, before he can tell you. And it's like, they, yeah, I'm just like. Yeah, just tell me what we're supposed to do. Like, give me, like, give me the lowdown. Like, the, the, yeah, they're like talking, like they're giving me little crumbs of what socialism is. I was like, motherfuckers, I could tell you what socialism is. Like, do you know what socialism is? <laughs> and oh my god, one of the topics was in the socialism category, and the question was, what did Stalin? kill Trotsky with and I was like well A I'm having an aneurysm right now <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Oh, dude, it, it was it was a good time though. I'm not gonna lie, I had a real good time. But they straight up, they, they don't know it. They don't get it, and you could tell a handful of them do. Like the old lady I was talking to, I can't remember her name. I think it was Barbara, or maybe I'm just saying Barbara because that's an old lady name. <laughs> um, but. But you could tell she knew her shit. I mean, she would get into historical references. I mean, hell, she knew the exact city Trotsky was picked in the head. Every little thing she knew incredible details on has clearly done her reading. And I was like, Barb, it, it's been a, a pleasure getting to know you. And I, I hope you realize not all tankies are, you know, fucking basically Nazis. And she's like, no, I, I've never thought that, you know, I... I think, you know, authoritarianism is bad and, and this and that. But, you know, at the end of the day, anyone who's on the left, I'm going to find common ground with. And I was like, good for you, you fucking liberal. <laughs> <laughs> My only interaction with them is I went to some Atlanta meeting for DSA and sat through the thing. And I mean, there was there was a good amount of, I guess, community organizing, like they had some relief shit for some local uh, yeah. things. But, you know, then I talked to the chairperson afterward and I was just like, so, you know, how can I get involved as an anarchist? And what do you think <laughs> you would have for me exactly? And she's like, well, you could pay the membership fee and become part of the party and slowly push us left. And I was like, I think I'm just going to leave. Yeah, yeah. She's like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. What, what do you mean? You like make Molotov cocktails? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> It's like, first off, I'm broke, so I can't give you anything. Uh, right. And second off, you know, I'm doing all of this on my own anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, I think it's cool. I think the DSA is a very cool, like, introduction to the left. I think anyone who's a liberal, dude, check it out. Just go join it. You know, find some actual community. I have nothing but good things to say about the DSA, but... You know, they start showing you what's past being a liberal. You know, don't be scared to keep looking. And that's what's strange to me is like, how do you get into the DSA and spend your entire career there and never think about what's past it? Right. Yeah. That, that was I don't know my, how I would do my that. line of thought with it. Yeah. I don't see how I could possibly do that. Like, I swear, as soon as I started becoming like a Bernie Sanders supporter, it was inevitable that I would be like fucking buying USSR you know, paraphernalia. Yeah, I don't know. In a country like this where everything is right wing and people are not convinced that it is I, like DSA is great for that. as mm -hmm. you know, just like an entryway into something different. I'm glad that there's not like a big stigma around yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's not pointless, just it's definitely not for me. Yeah. Yeah, I keep getting people, like, DMing me, asking me about, like, you know, I notice you've been trashing Bernie or you've been trashing AOC or trashing, you know, whatever other Democrats or Dem Sox or whoever. Mm. And they're like, what do you think of them? I'm like, well, you know, they are what they are. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't think that electoralism is going to lead us in that direction because obviously we've seen whether you're Bernie in the primary 2016 or 2020 or whether you're AOC trying to get even like the barest minimum of progressive legislation through, or you're Shahid Buttar, like your own party's going to fuck you over. And they're going to do that every single time yep. and prevent you from doing any of the good stuff that you want to do for people. And so if you really think that's an option, like, I don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to like go through it for a few years, get a few disappointments under your belt, and then you'll learn. But they do serve their purpose. Like they definitely help move people left. Like, you know, that's really what I consider AOC yep. and, burning to be is the gateway drug to leftism and hopefully people come really far left but 
I feel like a lot of them do end up just getting stuck in the DSA quicksand or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, with Joe Biden as president, those few years of disappointment they need might be consolidated to a few months. So <laughs> he's working quick on disappointment, man. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've never seen anyone turn so many liberals off. Like, I hate it because now the liberals are basically politicizing to the point where they are either digging their feet in and they are starting to really resemble conservatives or, you know, they, they are kind of waking up and it, I feel like, you know, maybe this is where we start cutting the fat off. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the whole thing is designed to consolidate to the right. That's what it's been doing for the past, you know, 40 years conservatively. Yeah. So I think it's just a matter of whether people catch on to it or not, but whether or not people care about people being locked in camps anymore, uh, I think that the material conditions of the United States kind of speak for themselves. So yep. that is something to consider. Even here in Asheville right now, they're trying to open, and, you know, Asheville's on Forbes, it's on Bloomberg, it's on everything. Like this city could ask any corporation to move here yep. and they would because it's trendy and there's good beer and it's weird and, you know, people like it. It's a good PR stunt for any corporation. So who do mm -hmm. we get? We got Pratt and Whitney. Which is basically Raytheon. Yeah. Yikes. And the locals here are defending it like, oh, we need these manufacturing jobs. And they're offering 30 million in municipal incentives for these people to move here. And I'm just like, dude, could we make cars or like literally anything besides something for fucking Raytheon, which we already subsidize? And then you want to give them more of our money. The, the amount of bootlicking going on in this particular area is. You know, I'm surprised, but I'm sad that I'm surprised because I shouldn't be. I'm just like, what the fuck, man? Like, you're really this desperate for, like, military industrial complex cock. It's, <laughs> it's really sad. How y'all doing? Good, how are you? Doing great. Great playing, yeah. I'm spending some time in the outdoors over the winter break, which has been really nice. So. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're out in L.A. or D.C. right now? Normally, I live in San Francisco, but oh, I'm San in Francisco, none of those duh. At the moment, I'm in Utah. I was hiking in Moab uh, oh, the man. weekend before last, and then on the border with Nevada last week, and snowboarding in between. Jesus Christ. So Beautiful. dope. That's awesome. awesome. I'm pretty stoked, yeah. I feel very lucky at the so moment. There, there are perks to Nancy Pelosi winning, at least. You got to enjoy, <laughs> enjoy a little bit of life. <laughs> yes, and you don't know the half of it. Like I've, I particularly thought that very much. On January 6th, yeah. that was going through my mind a lot. I bet, oh, yeah. I bet, I bet. So, thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. We appreciate you taking the time out. Yeah, I mean, we are so fucking excited to have you. Thanks for the platform. I'm stoked to be with you. And I haven't had a chance to check out your like platform in depth, but the way Sterling was describing it as irreverent and having comedic elements and... Like, yeah, I'm all yeah. about it. You know, I feel like when I was running and at the moment, I'm sort of like an industry regnum, you know, so I can be a little more myself. Yeah. And I'm, um, yeah, grateful for the chance to step outside the suit. You know what I mean? Oh, hell yeah. That's that, that's what we were talking about before this. Cause so I feel like everyone who's interviewed you has really tried to, oh, let's talk Pelosi or let, let's talk all that other stuff that, you know, I'm sure you're completely <laughs> sick of 
regurgitating the same bullshit over and over and you know we want this to feel like the the interview that you hadn't got to do with anyone else let's have a good time on some topics you know we're all super leftists of you know various different angles jaron's an anarchist you know me and mike ward are probably straight up tankies but having (laughs) someone with your experience i feel like we're all going to have the opportunity to hear a perspective that I feel like we don't focus on enough. You know, like like I was saying, we tend to, uh, you know, kind of shrug off electoralism and someone with your experience can give us so much information we don't have the ability to get ourselves. That'll be a great theme, actually, if you want to start the conversation somewhere, because I'm, I'm not actually an electoralist myself. Okay, excellent. Awesome. Um, I was a candidate, yeah. but like I, you know, I've been a direct action organizer yeah. and policy advocates so like I, i'm the first person to throw electoralism down the stairs and i'd, I'd love to stop awesome. there if you want awesome. Hell yeah. well, i'll let right on. i'll let mike get started and uh you know we'll, yeah, we'll let me just our intro i'll knock out the intro real quick and then we can just start and then i'll get to that Communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back again to the Turn Leftist Podcast. I'm Mike, and tonight I'm here with Sterling, Ward, and Jaron. And tonight we also have with us a special guest. We have Shahid Bittar, and he was a challenger to Nancy Pelosi in the past election. How are you doing, Shahid? I'm stoked to be here. Thank you for being here. We appreciate you uh, giving us the time. So if anyone's not familiar with Shahid, like I said, he challenged Nancy Pelosi in this past November. But just a little background. So he leads EFF's grassroots and student outreach efforts. He's a constitutional lawyer focused on community organizing and policy reform as a lever to shift legal norms with roots in communities across the country resisting mass surveillance. From 2009 to 2015, he led the Bill of Rights Defense Committee as executive director. And after graduating from Stanford Law School in 2003, where he grew immersed in the movement to stop the war in Iraq, Shahid worked for a decade in Washington, D.C., He first worked in private practice with public interest litigation projects advancing campaign finance reform and marriage equality for same-sex couples as early as 2004, when LGBT rights remained politically marginal. And from 2005 to 2008, he helped build a national progressive legal network and managed the communications team at the American Constitution Society for Law and Policy. And in 2008 and 2009, he founded the program to combat racial and religious profiling at Muslim Advocates. Now, is, is all that, have you like left any of those organizations or stopped doing any of that? Basically, is any of that something that you would want me to cut? No, I, I appreciate you asking. All of it is in my past, and I no longer lead EFF's grassroots organizing efforts. I left EFF in 2018. Okay. Uh, went back in 2019 after my 2018 campaign and then left again. I basically took a, a three-month leave for my first mm-hmm. race and then left in 2019. So that, that's, all of that is historical work I've done. And you can yeah. include any of it. I would just encourage you to, to frame the EFF stuff as stuff I did before. I, That's I'm what not... I figured. Yeah, I got that from a fairly older video of yours. It was actually, I, I want to say it was from your TED Talk, which I That's thought was really interesting. Oh, I love and it. I'd love to talk about some of those things. Right on. In particular. checking that out. Though. Oh, yeah, it was great. Uh, in particular, like you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, you were happy to be spending some time, uh, you know, outdoors and you know, just having some free time. And you feel really lucky to do that. But um particularly, like you said, on January 6th. And I thought it was really funny that you mentioned that because I just watched today a video of you back in September 
And it almost was like you predicted exactly that was going to happen in so many words. Like this video of you in September, you're saying we are really in danger of this criminal president and his criminal administration and what they're going to do to try and attack our democracy. Did you see something like that coming? You know, obviously it's better that you weren't in Nancy Pelosi's shoes that day, but did you see that exact kind of thing coming or did you see just something similar that might happen? I saw something coming. I appreciate you raising this issue because I've often felt somewhat vindicated. I don't want to, you know, blow smoke up anybody's ass here, but there, since 2004, I've had fears that something like this would happen. There was an FBI whistleblower in 2004 named Mike German, who, uh, you know, I count as a mentor. He's forgotten more about, you know, government surveillance than I've ever learned. And he quit the agency, the Bureau, after 17 years of infiltrating white supremacist groups around the country. He was undercover assessing the landscape of white supremacy. And, you know, almost two decades ago, he blew a whistle saying that white nationalists have plots to poison the water supplies of major cities, truck bombs targeting energy facilities, like, you know, big scale domestic terrorism. Yeah. The, the stuff, basically, he was saying at the time that the Bush administration was blaming we Muslims for engineering. And there was this whole series of fake plots that the Bureau was sort of contriving targeting Muslims. And here comes this whistleblower saying, there are real problems here. Terrorism is a real issue. And we're not addressing any of it because instead of investigating the real legitimate threat that he's established, identified, couldn't get resources to prosecute, the government was contriving boogeyman out of you know people like me. And if that was one phase of it, the next phase for me really came under Trump when you know the attack on our democracy, he waged openly for four years. And there was a moment, people might remember it last summer, where he invited military deployment to try to quell the protests in multiple cities responding to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And mm -hmm. military generals refused. A bunch of retired generals went on the t on television network saying, these are illegal orders, we're not going to pursue them. And that, frankly, to me, was January 6th, at least in terms of telegraphing the president's intentions, mm -hmm. what he did on January 6th was mobilize his paramilitary brown shirts after the official yep. apparatus refused appropriately to respond to his invitation to overturn yep. democracy. So I saw the coup as one that, frankly, has been unfolding in slow motion by the right wing for over a decade, and one that accelerated very sharply, not just in January, but over the course of the preceding year. A further point here I'd make is, you know, over the two times that the House impeached the president, at no point in any of those charges were his subversion of the republic or his corruption in the form of enriching himself. None of that was ever on the table. And that's what he should have been impeached for. And frankly, I think he might have been removed from office. I fear the precedent that under-inclusive impeachment processes set because any future corrupt president, inspired by his megalomaniacal corrupt example, has a paved road that Congress essentially constructed by failing to even attempt to hold him accountable for the things that he, the, the most dire among his offenses. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, John. I just wanted to piggyback on that question and get your opinion on something. Uh, and I'm not trying to lead with this question at all, um, but I'm just curious, you know, in terms of like seeing these, these grassroots white supremacist organizations you know, infiltrating law enforcement and, of course, mobilizing on their own with little to no resistance from the government as it is. I can't help but wonder if what, what would your thoughts be on like economic stimulus contributing to this sort of disenfranchisement of the middle class that does lead to extremism and 
support for a right-wing authoritarianism, if that is something that you perceive or not, or why? Oh, absolutely. Neoliberalism is hugely responsible for the rise of white-wing, right-wing white nationalism. And, you know, we can replay the tape here 30 years because it was in the era of, at the time in the 90s, it was described as corporate globalization. I remember marching alongside tens of thousands of steelworkers in Miami. Uh, this was 2003. We were protesting the free trade area of the Americas. It was a proposed trade agreement that would have, you know, essentially extended NAFTA across the Western Hemisphere. And we effectively are now in the United States experiencing the predictable consequences of an international trade regime that we enforced around the world for 50 years before our chicken came home to roost. And mm -hmm. there were any number of countries in which austerity policies bred, you know, grassroots resentments from all sides of the political aisle. And when it came home to the United States, this is the eventual result. You know, our comparative advantage doesn't lie in manufacturing. So we don't have manufacturing in the United States anymore, except in prisons. And think about the way that's impacted the labor movement. Think about the fact that the minimum wage hasn't been updated in over a decade, right? And that we're fighting for 15 now, when if, if the minimum wage just kept pace with inflation, it would be at $22. And if it kept pace with worker productivity, it'd be 25 and it's right now at $7.25. Are you kidding me? Like what, how are, I know entirely too well how we are at this point. And it's, it's to your, you know, to your, the question that you're raising, I absolutely place the blame for the disaffection that drives right-wing nationalism at the feet of the bipartisan consensus favoring Wall Street before the American people. If we had Medicare for all, if we had any kind of commitment to opportunities for people across the body politic, you wouldn't have this degree of resentment because it's all driven ultimately by scarcity, right? I mean, and let's just peel off a piece of white nationalism here. If we think specifically about xenophobia and the anti-immigrant sort of like sentiment that is built over the last several decades, it all ultimately turns on this canard of they took our jobs. But the problem there is that there are no jobs. <laughs> Right. And yeah. if, we, if, we had, if we had a federal jobs guarantee, do you think there'd be any root for that kind of demagoguery? Of course not. You know, it's ultimately and I'm not going to downplay the extent to which racial animus and hate play a role because they do, obviously. Yeah. But economic scarcity, fear, ultimately, is a very fertile ground from which to sprout nefarious fruit. And if people didn't feel that degree of scarcity and desperation, I don't think that it would be so easy to start casting blame in random directions on powerless people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you fit right in with us. We spend so much time on this podcast, just trashing Reagan for the world that he's left us all with. Um, yeah. So Thank real you. quick, you wanted to show him the back of your shirt? Oh yeah. I don't know. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Good. The camera will do it. Can you see it? Oh no, it's good. It says uh, Reagan is the Satan there, right. but. <laughs> that's amazing I, that makes me want to go bust a t-shirt out of the closet i just got from left flank vets and they sent me this uh t-shirt and it's amazing yeah. the it's a little hard to read because the designs you know what have you but the, the the line is blood makes the cash grow oh my and it's like an image of like blood dripping into soil and dollars coming out of it I and mean, it's incredibly poignant yeah yep. make sure and i think of Ronald reagan is a perfect example of that yeah, yeah. If you'll, i mean that's uh 
that's our podcast merch that Sterling has so you know conveniently worn on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, if you if you're, you're um, gonna send a dress, I'd love to send you one of the shirts. It's fucking hilarious. It's Reagan and Satan. He's holding a tomahawk and a bag of crack. I mean, you can't you can't do much more. <laughs> oh, oh, oh yeah, I'll send you my address. Yeah, for sure. I will wear it proudly. Excellent, excellent. But um, yeah, I mean, like I said, we gladly you know we love to trash Reagan every chance we get because. That really is what we say all the time is that he led us to this point where, and no, not just him solely, but the idea of Reagan economics trickle down, just giving the rich everything that they want while the poor and the working classes have to just beg for the scraps. It seems like it should be common sense to say that it's not going to work out, but I guess we just have to continue to fuck around for a few more decades before we really will admit that to ourselves. I don't know why it's so hard, but... um if I may, I, I would say you're being too charitable to Ronald Reagan because it's it, all of that Damn is true. Mike. And you know, he didn't just engineer you know, this fraud of trickle-down economics. I think of Ronald Reagan, particularly through the lens of the mining the Nicaraguan harbor in Managua, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, mm-hmm. you know, this was someone who prolifically engineered international human rights abuses. I have, a, I have a song I'm actually recording at the moment for my album that I'm working on, and it's a brief history of the CIA. Yeah. Reagan's legacy was creating Al-Qaeda. Oh, yeah. The CIA trained them mm-hmm. under Reagan. So when you think about our like actual legitimate national security threats, we have Ronald Reagan to thank yes. for 9-11, ultimately. That wouldn't have happened without Ronald Reagan. You're- you're and, saying the exact you know, same words we say all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to know we're all the first time I've ever been accused of being too nice to Ronald Reagan. I'll never let that happen again. I promise. I'll never let you live that down. <laughs> My work here is done. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Jaren. Just tacking onto that too, uh, with the whole CIA making the executive office its bitch, more or less. I mean, the... <laughs> nice. You know, Al-Qaeda getting armed by Reagan and even Jimmy Carter had a hand in that, which I'm pretty sure if memory serves, George H.W. Bush was the CIA director at the time. And then he ends up being yep. fucking president, which proves my point. So, I, yeah, I mean, the, the idea, even just base level, that almost all of this was like completely manufactured is really not that far off. Like you don't even have to dig deep to find it. But, you know, for some reason, even post the 9-11 era, we're still blaming Muslims and we still have like pervasive, like you said, xenophobia. Uh, Despite these things, this isn't a classified document. You know, it's mind boggling. (laughs) And just think about what's behind the wall of classification. If that's the stuff we know about. Oh, yeah. And we know that they were running crack cocaine into U.S. cities, which led to what? The paramilitarization of police and two and a half million people behind prison. Right. I mean. People blame appropriately Joe Biden and Bill Clinton for mass incarceration, but it really, you know, its its genesis was frankly well even before Reagan, you know, under Nixon. But but Reagan did a number, and particularly the CIA's machinations in Central America in that era, that was the essential ingredient in the metastasis of mass surveillance that, or mass incarceration that came next. Frankly, mass surveillance too, because that you know I think about the the DEA's interdiction efforts there also had a you know. A vector to consider here but yeah there's a lot we can trace back to reagan the idea that he's remembered in any circles because some conservatives do consider him a hero which i think preposterous and it's all based on this 
ephemeral notion of optimism. It's kind of what, and you can see a very explicit homage to it in Donald Trump's messaging, right? When he talks about making America great again, well, he was basically, that was an all on homage to Reagan, but who can actually look back on that era with any shred of integrity if they understand the facts and actually praise it? It's all built on a facade. And, you know, I appreciate you locating some of the roots in the Carter administration. I tend to be, uh, I think of Jimmy Carter as almost like the last good Democratic president who, you know, I can look back on with some uh, pride. And I understand he had his faults, too. But like between the solar panels on the roof of the White House, between, you know, he did in some ways try to fight the military industrial complex, certainly more than anybody has since. And then, of course, thinking about his international human rights record in the years since, I, I think of Jimmy Carter as one of our few former presidents of whom I am uh, generally fond. I, I don't take that as a, a slight against Carter. I just am of the belief that if a system is as corrupt as the U.S., it is impossible to have a genuinely altruistic component in that seat. So, I mean, he could be the best guy in the world, but as soon as he becomes president, I'm going to dislike him. But that's just me. <laughs> uh, anyway... <laughs> Yeah, I get the impression that Carter is most widely, you know, revered for his work after his presidency, where he's done a lot of really good charitable stuff. And he just seems like a, for anyone who has been a president to be closest to a genuinely nice guy who cares about other people, you know, I think he gets a lot of flack for his malaise speech, where he had generally good intentions, where he was talking about what was at the root of the problem uh, for this entire country. And he was sort of beating around the bush at getting at the rampant consumerism and individualism and just the everybody look out for only yourself and not be concerned with any sense of community. Um, but it's hard to push that in any kind of country as neoliberal and as right-wing as this country is. But that leads us in a couple interesting directions because you started to talk a bit about just the CIA and its machinations. And what I was going to get at earlier talking about Reagan was the two-pronged approach of neoliberalism, which is that the right obviously pushes the right-wing economic side, uh, the trickle-down economics, But then the left, or as it's supposed, the left in this country, the Democrat Party, does not really resist that in any meaningful way because they are on board with that idea to begin with. You know, at their very core, they are capitalists and they are not going to do anything that is really going to serve the working class in anything but lip service. Um, So we can talk about either one of those things. I think it may be a little more interesting to talk about the CIA because I think you have uh, plenty to say about that. But we can go in any direction that you wanted, but I do want to ask you at some point tonight about what you think of the idea of the CIA as sort of a shadow government that actually controls the direction of this country more than either party is concerned, because that's something that I've been hearing a lot more recently. Uh, but you can, you can talk about that if you like, whichever. Uh, yeah, let's talk going on the CIA. One, and, and just to sort of like set a stage here, I would say there's in the last several years been a rising awareness of neoliberalism and the way it sort of lurks beneath the superstructure of our supposed political debate, you know, the way you were describing the supposed left wing, right? And I'm excited to see the rise of a socialist sensibility across the body politic, particularly among millennials and Zoomers. And I fear that it is entirely domestically focused. Absolutely. That many young socialists, you know, their view of socialism is not informed by an awareness of imperialism or colonialism and its continuing legacies. And if there's anything, you know, I, I, I often just dis- distinguish myself from garden variety socialists on the fact that I am post-colonial. I am a child of the military industrial complex. I wouldn't be American if it didn't exist because my family basically fled the rights abuses imposed 
at the time that we fled, the military government hadn't yet come in, but a military government supported by the U.S. came in and doubled down on the discrimination and state violence that drove my family to emigrate from Pakistan to Britain and then seeking opportunity and an escape from sort of British marginalization of post-colonial communities to come to the U.S. And so I locate my own origins as an American immigrant in the excesses of our military industrial complex and its ignorance of international human rights. This, just for what it's worth, only because I'm on this point of distinction, this was one of the issues between me and my staff in the primary that sort of led to some friction because they didn't get the message because it's, you know, a lot of socialists don't understand that it's not just economics. There is an iron fist behind the invisible hand. That's a good way to put it. You know, whether that's the Department of So-Called Defense or the Criminal Intelligence Agency or, you know, pick your three-letter agency. Uh, And I've had an opportunity to fight a lot of them. When we talk about the CIA in particular, it's interesting to me that when anybody, you know, claims that the agency can be legitimate, you know, my central question is, what agency in a democracy should have the right to have a classified budget? Like it's one thing for operations to be classified, but like how can anybody seriously claim that the budget line, the bottom line number that we, the American people, invest in this agency, that there's any legitimate ground for that number to be classified? That is outrageous. And it should outrage anybody. And I don't even think of my own socialism necessarily as socialism. I frankly think of it as just a democracy struggle in the face of a country that claims democracy while knowing, frankly, very little of it. And no agency demonstrates that to me better than one with a legacy of murdering priests and raping nuns and mining harbors and engineering coups of democratically elected governments to steal their country's fruit, literally fruit, Mm -hmm. and not in one country, but many, before wars for oil, before torturing detainees, before assassinating people, even U.S. citizens, using remotely piloted drones. And in the case of the U.S. citizen and a 16-year-old U.S.-born kid, these were people who were trying to vindicate their rights in U.S. courts. And the CIA is vaporizing them without charge or trial. I mean, I see the CIA as sort of like a, you know, to whatever extent anybody has illusions about the United States, it's the point at which the illusions reveal themselves, as if you ever have an opportunity to grapple with that agency's history. I should shout out a book, Legacy of Ashes by Tim Weiner, I believe is his name. It's an incredible mm-hmm. read and really lays all this out. Sterling, you had a yeah, thought? Um, on that topic, it's always kind of dumbfounded me. And I kind of, I think the whole Mueller investigation and Mueller report really brought this to my uh, purview, but during that investigation, especially when Congress got involved, it really showed me how little Congress, so many members of Congress, more so on the right than the left, know anything about the CIA or some of these other investigations. Like some of the things they were saying just dumbfounded me. And I'm like, have you ever looked into the CIA? Do you understand how the CIA works? Do you understand how classified documents? And they're they're complaining about not having access to certain things. And I'm like, well, you're the one in power to fix that if this is all of a sudden an issue to you. You know, and it's like you're just learning about it. And it's strange to me that we have you know, these members of Congress representing us that know practically nothing but how to fucking campaign. And that's why it's so refreshing to see politicians like yourself who do have the education, who have put the time into uh, to learn that. I appreciate that. I still chafe at being called a politician because I'm an advocate. <laughs> yeah, sorry, right? sorry. I mean, I'm, 
I don't identify as a politician, though I get the point. Um, I think you were onto something when you were talking about how, you know, these people, policymakers have no clue what they're dealing with. Just think about what we select them on the basis of. It's not historical acumen, not any grounding in theory or praxis. We select them on the basis of how much corporate money they can raise. So of course they're in there. <laughs> like, why would we expect anything less, right? There's a predictable result of that is if we're individually selecting the members on the basis of effectively their fidelity to the existing establishment, we can expect that the body that is composed of them will not be particularly independent. In fact, it's supine. Yeah. And this arena about intelligence agencies and their serial violations of international human rights and U.S. constitutional principles, it brings it out to the fore. 76, 1976, the Church Committee in the Senate and the Pike Committee in the House conduct the last, so far, searching investigation into U.S. intelligence agencies. And it was driven by a bunch of hippies breaking into an FBI office, like picking the lock and taking paper files out of a filing cabinet during the Ali Frazier fight when everybody was distracted. <laughs> and they drove these files. It's a real story. There's a documentary, 1971. That's fire uh, as hell. I love that. <laughs> right? I mean, it's super legit. And frankly, the amazing thing about this story, so the people who engineered this action, the ones who broke into the FBI office, they stayed secret for 40 years. Nobody knew who they were. They only came out in the last couple of years. They came public, I think, late in the Obama administration, maybe under Trump. Um, and this documentary, 1971, was filmed. It was a big story at I mean, when they came out at the time, it was an even bigger story because what their files proved was that the FBI was infiltrating civil rights groups across the country and Puerto Rican independence groups and organizations trying to stop the war in Vietnam, move, uh, groups seeking equal rights for women. Yeah, this was the revelation of COINTELPRO. So, so the Pike and the church committees conduct this investigation. They publish three books of their findings. As one of the key results of that whole phase was the creation of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the Senate and House Intelligence Committees. And so that happened in 76. In the years since then, those committees have basically done more or less nothing, at least anything meaningful. There was a, a flash in the pan late in the Obama presidency when the Senate Intelligence Committee under Dianne Feinstein's leadership I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> but, you know, they tried to fight to get a report about CIA torture into the public that the Senate staff had spent years compiling. And as a result, the CIA hacked the Senate, stole the documents, reported to the Justice Department, the Senate staffers trying to claim that they were threats to national security. And Dianne Feinstein, of all people, and you know how liberal she is, <laughs> Dianne Feinstein, under the Obama administration, took to the Senate floor to decry a constitutional crisis. So when we talk about January 6th and people being surprised, no one, I mean, Dianne Feinstein is to the right of the Democratic Party. She's one yeah. of the most conservative members of the party. And when she is saying there's a constitutional crisis <laughs> because international <laughs> human rights are in exile and the CIA is attacking the Jesus Senate. Christ. We should all be very, very alarmed. That was eight years ago, and it's only gotten worse since then. Jesus. Yeah, when I mentioned the CIA earlier, I was hesitant to, because it's something that I just do too much, but take a drink because I'm going to recommend another podcast. <laughs> but um, Chapa has done some recent episodes. I don't know if um, you're familiar, Shahid, with Chapa Trap House, but you know, they're yeah, probably the most popular leftist podcast. And their episodes on uh, George H.W. Bush that they've done recently were incredibly revealing. 
they talked a lot about his connection. Obviously, he was the director of the CIA for a while, but just the amount of connections that they make in the episodes that they've done, they make a really convincing case that the CIA was responsible for not only the JFK assassination, but also getting Nixon out of office. Like the Watergate, that was Watergate, right? Was Nixon? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, they, they make a convincing case that they were responsible for that as well, because both presidents were not playing ball with the CIA's goals. So, I mean, I guess that's just overall to say that there is no atrocity that you could attribute to the CIA that I would be surprised at at this point, uh, or that our listeners should be surprised at. Like, just imagine the most evil clandestine organization that you can imagine, and then just try to extrapolate what you think that they would still be doing today. That's really the main point I want to get across with that. But I also did want to, uh, let me see what you have, Jaron, because the only other thing I was going to say is try to lead it more in the direction of less shadowy and more overt resistance. And I was going to take it in the direction of talking about your campaign just a little bit, what resistance you encountered outright. But I want to see what uh, Jaron was going to say first. Yeah, I think that we should take it in that direction because uh, there's just such a wealth of knowledge that you have, you know, having actually been boots on the ground in the electoral process and everything. But I just wanted to point out a fun fact regarding the Bush dynasty because they just suck so much. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Prescott Bush was one of the guys that actually invested in something called the Mosul Haifa pipeline. And this pipeline went from the Zagros Mountains in Iraq out to uh, Oms in Syria. And basically without this pipeline, the Allied effort on the World War II front would have failed you know, refueling stuff and getting things up to Europe and things like that. So anyway, they've had this like crazy obsession with the region. And after World War II ended and everything balkanized, they shut the pipeline down. So then Prescott Bush's son, while he's in the CIA, keeps pushing for getting this pipeline reopened. It never really works, but he causes a whole shit storm in the Middle East. And then his son, W, manages to wage utter hell in Iraq. And now, I think in the Obama administration, they were in talks of opening it back up. So, like, these sagas take a half a fucking century to unfold. And it's still, like, within this dynasty that existed, you know, in the 1940s. It's absolutely insane. And it's, it's part of the marriage of the CIA and the Pentagon and the Bush family. And, you know, who knows what roles there were to play in it. But I guess my point bringing it up is, like, yeah, how can you consider this a democracy when we've had organized effort on the behalf of private interests that has lasted almost a hundred fucking years? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Well, and, and the thing that I hear you sort of drawing out is the intergenerational project within this single dynasty. You know, I would extrapolate from that to particularly identify capital as the thing that transcends even individual lives. Like I, I hear a lot of, for instance, among young leftists, for instance, this like a location of the blame at the feet of either boomers or the 1%. And they've all certainly have more influence than than I do or any of us maybe. But at the end of the day, I've talked to so many people in the 1% who I wouldn't say that they might be quite where we're at, but, you know, folks who are not down with the prevailing paradigm and who, despite their own individual comfort, feel, and I think probably are, more or less entirely powerless to do a damn thing about it. Oh, yeah. And, and it's precisely because capital controls even people who have it. It is a thing that is not human that we created, a fiction to facilitate exchange to which we have already become enslaved. Yeah. I sort of think of this as the like key genius of the Matrix trilogy, you know, and it's like, and I think the Wachowskis had, you know, certainly a great deal of anti-establishment leanings. But when you think about 
capital as a human creation that does lead people to our graves en masse, and as you point out, has been doing that for decades. If not, frankly, I mean, let's go back centuries, right? I mean, the transatlantic slave trade, what was that if not a human rights abuse engine to serve capital? What was colonialism? Same thing, you know, and we have to identify our antagonists, I think, accurately, because frankly, boomers aren't the enemy. And the 1% isn't the enemy. Capital is the enemy. I agree with and, that. And, you know, it's, it's got its fingers in lots of different pots, not just the boomers and, and not just the 1%. Yes. Since you brought that up, I, I wanted to touch on something else that, that kind of, you know, entangles into this. And it's that you, ha- you make a point to use a, a phrase that I'm a big fan of, which is corporate Democrats, whereas a lot of us say establishment Democrats. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the main point here is to differentiate the fact that they're not just huddling together like at the DNC with some evil plot to, you know, secretly fuck all the little people, but they are beholden to the, to corporations, not necessarily the establishment. They've been playing this game of give a little piece of their soul for for capital, for, you know, media attention, for various other things to the for generations to the point where the DNC's practically got no soul left to even barter with, and now it's like just about any bill that goes on the floor has to fucking pass through J.P. Morgan before it can even be considered by Congress. And I think that's one thing that I really appreciate about like grassroots uh, candidates like yourself is I don't see how we are not demanding that our politicians, you know, are disconnected from corporate interests before they're actually given the opportunity. Yeah, it's it's this game where, where capital has rigged it, and now everyone who is put in charge to fix it is also part of the fix. Yeah, they're on the take. I mean, you're absolutely onto something there. And it, there's lots of different points at which this corporate control, bipartisan corporate control, asserts itself. The obvious one is campaign finance, right? And, that, and that's a story of corporate PACs. That's a story of professional networks being mobilized to support corporate candidates. But even after the fact of elections, corporate lobbying, which is so now we've got people in Congress. And the question is, what bills are they introducing? What are they thinking about? What are the hearings that they're demanding? If you go on the Capitol Hill and you stroll the halls for every one public interest advocate, and I've been a public interest advocate, for every one of us, there are 100, 500, maybe 1,000 corporate lobbyists. Half the bills that get introduced in Congress are prepared by law firms representing corporations who then take their requests to Congress and then they feed them into policy. There are entire networks around the country. ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, comes to mind as a, you know, a, a network dedicated to that praxis. Um, I, that's, God, I, hate I can't you. give them I hate that to word. hear that word used that way. I'm <laughs> <laughs> about, about to take it back. That's right wing. Yeah, like, I don't want to give them the word. Uh, that's, their, that's their brand of yeah. corruption, let's say. But then there's other, other parts of corporate control. Think about military procurement and contracting. So, you know, we've gotten through the sort of like selective weeding out of policymakers to ensure the grassroots people dedicated to the public aren't in. We've gotten through the process now where the corporations are stacking the deck in the policymaking apparatus. Every time you hear a bill described as a must-pass bill, and that's going to be every appropriation for the Defense Department, that's going to be anything in the security arena, all of those are only must-pass bills because Congress is supine and defers to this process of 
basically siphoning resources into whether it's military contractors or you know their contractors in other parts of the federal government too. Um, and maybe the last place I'd locate this is I'd go to Dr. King and specifically his letter from a Birmingham jail. It's one of my favorite texts in American political history, precisely because he explains that it is the willingness of our supposed allies to defer to, and you can call it the establishment, you can call it Wall Street. I kind of see them collapsing, frankly, but it is the, it is the willingness of liberals, proud liberals who will you know, pick up the phone and march and do all the performative things. It's their willingness to defend their comfort order before justice willingness to defer a long-standing set of principles into the indefinite future. That is why we are in this mm. mess. We should expect the intransigence of our enemies, King said. The opportunity is to encourage our allies to finally show up. And, you know, that's what, and I'll, I'll say that if there's any, for me, hope, uh, ground for hope, it's precisely in seeing in the last year, our allies, not in Congress, but our allies in the grassroots, show up. And think about the beginning of the the pandemic, you know, March to maybe, I mean, all year last year. And I, I'm thinking particularly of the phase when people weren't sure whether going to the protests was safe, right? And I saw millions of Americans, even in the face of doubt and uncertainty and self-risk, still show up to defend our yeah. neighbors. I actually saw that as almost like the beginnings of another revolution. And, you know, it's one that we certainly haven't culminated yet. But when we shrug off the yoke of capital and when we establish human rights as, pardon me, basic needs as human rights that we recognize and provide the resources for, I think then we'll have you know, gotten to a place where we can look back and, and be proud of the ground that we've covered in between. But just to see America stand up yeah. and huge shout out to Portland and everybody and everybody in the Portland scene oh, yeah. who, was, who was active last year. I mean, I, you all, frankly, inspired the whole country and uh, eager to see what it leads. Yeah. And like, you know, we've heard people make comments that we at least agree to a point of, you know, Black Lives Matter being compared to a vanguard movement. And it certainly had more potential than anything else we've really seen in our generation. And man, it, it was just so inspiring to see those movements. And just to I, I want to illustrate there is a difference between, you know, fearing your safety to go out to protest these causes and refusing to wear a mask because you want to go get a fucking foot-long hot dog at the barbecue. <laughs> Very different praxis. No, man, that's my freedom. You can't have that. There's something so essential there to press on, like the idea that we have become so colonized that anybody infers a liberty interest in the, the idea of walking around without a mask. Liberty does not inhere in being randomly unfettered. <laughs> liberty doesn't adhere in putting your neighbors yes. at risk. Liberty, at the very least, is about having the opportunity to choose your own yeah. path, which we do not have in this country by a long yeah. shot. You know, liberty at least includes public transparency and accountability. We don't have either of those things. You know, like, to anybody who would, who would settle for liberty as meager as the opportunity to walk around and kill your neighbors <laughs> and your own family, that's... <laughs> We could do a lot better than that. And I would, I would, you know, damn well hope I we completely would. agree. I've always found it funny that, you know, like libertarians who run around talking about rights and liberty and this and that. I'm like, okay, well, all of the liberties you're naming are kind of fictional. Like, what about health care? What about, you know, like food and housing? What about actual liberties that you can touch and not I should be allowed to say racial slurs on Twitter? 
I like how you put that liberties you can touch. I mean, that's a really elegant way of distinguishing negative versus positive freedoms. I might use that. It's all yours. Ask a libertarian about positive rights and see their head explode because they just can't. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. Part part of it is, is the unwillingness to recognize the role of basic needs and unlocking opportunities. But, you know, no one's free to do anything when you're hungry. Right. I mean, that's just how it is. And, yeah. you know, it, maybe it takes an experience of marginalization to realize that, uh, you know, I've often given thanks for the periods in my life uh, that were subjectively unpleasant. And if there's anything you learn from being hungry, it's how much that preoccupies one's attention and frankly yeah. precludes any set of, you know, downstream considerations. You know, it's, it's sort of like intrinsic to the Maslow's construction of the hierarchy of needs. But when your basic needs are not there. That's pretty much all you have the capacity to to think about or organize around. Jaron, you have to Jaron. So there's there's just a recent event that just encapsulates what you're saying so well. And that it was again in Portland. It just always keeps happening in Portland. But it was a Fred Meyer grocery store where you know they got hit with the ice storm and uh, they lost power. So the grocery store chucks all of its all of its good food in the dumpster because it's going to go bad. And then all these people go and try and get the food because they're hungry and their power's out of their house and their fridge went bad and everything. And they call the fucking cops to come and protect this food so that it can rot instead of letting people eat it. Like if that isn't a metaphor for like what we're dealing with, then I don't know what is. You could take a picture of that and that's America. We, yeah. we are resource rich and program poor. And that is by choice constantly and it's reinforced not to beat a dead horse by goddamn ronald reagan <laughs> and his meritocratic bullshit oh yeah where it's just like yeah you got to work for that food buddy you can't just have it for free it's like i can't flush my toilet <laughs> what are we doing real talk uh, the only place i push back there is i think you're being too charitable to democrats by <laughs> <laughs> you blame it reagan because it's not just reagan right king would say we should expect reagan to be reagan but it's when democrats leave the minimum wage at 725. Obama was in office for six years. True. After that, like how, how does a Democrat in, in the White House, again, the inability or unwillingness of our supposed allies to show up. Another place I might just quibble is that when Sterling was talking about how inspiring the movement for Black Lives has been, I don't want to overlook the Occupy movement. Like I was part of a movement that 10 years ago included public space reclamation holding public space for months at a time all over the yeah. country. And as, as inspiring as the movement for Black Lives has been, we haven't managed to do that since. I see the Occupy movement, frankly, as the high watermark of actual resistance to Wall Street's imperialism, frankly, over the last several generations, certainly in yeah. my lifetime. And I do think that the occupation of public space, if we think about sort of a, a gradient of actions, you know, like ephemeral direct actions are, you know, somewhere on that, you know, scale strikes and workplace organizing or another. If I think of a general strike as sort of the apex, the reclamation of public space is a critical step on the way there, particularly because anything we do online or anything even that we do in cloistered quasi public spaces is still opt in only. You have to follow the account or come to the meeting to know that it's happening. But when we reclaimed public space, it was public. It was in the public. Random people stumbled in. I remember being at Occupy St. Louis the day that it started. And St. Louis is the city I grew up in. So to have a chance to yeah. be there in the rain as Occupy St. Louis is coming together in Keysor Plaza was just such an incredible thrill for me. And I talked to 
an active duty Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who happened to be on leave and was walking by and had heard about this Occupy thing and wanted to drop in and talk to the kids. And like that doesn't happen unless it's public, right? Like holding public space enables opportunities for people to grow radicalized and inspired and connect in ways that other actions don't. So as you know, there's a long running discourse I've heard online and offline about like, how do we find our way out of this mess? I do think that a general strike is sort of like the one ring to rule them all. And, you know, and, and to get there, I think claiming public space, and I, I say this not to be too self-referential, but 18 years ago, I uh, started a street poetry convergence with three friends in San Francisco at the corner of 16th and Mission. And until the pandemic happened last year, every Thursday for 17 years, dozens of poets would converge in this public square and unamplified, without a permit, without any coordination, you know, we'd share very politicized, usually, work. And, and I saw all kinds of beautiful, amazing things happen there. Just to connect this back to Jaren's last comment, one of the reasons we picked that night was uh, originally, and things had shifted over the years, but originally we timed it to happen right after Food Not Bombs did a community feeding. Food Not Bombs, as the name would suggest, is an organization dedicated to repudiating violence in the service of feeding people. And one of the things they do is dumpster dive and redistribute food. Food Not Bombs under the Bush administration was classified as a national security threat. Jesus Christ. When they were targeting Muslims and infiltrating mosques, the other set of people they were chasing were anarchists and earth liberation activists. Food Not Bombs was a network where a lot of earth liberation activists had plugged in. And so the FBI started surveilling Uh. Food Not Bombs networks. It's called Food Not Bombs. And yet this was a group that now for 15 years, the FBI is designated as an object of interest. Mind you, this is the same time that the whistleblower is coming forward saying, the right wing is actively organizing and recruiting law enforcement and ex-military people for the benefit of their training. And now it takes 17 years for people to wake up and be like, oh, wow, January 6th happened. And I'll shut up after this. But anytime policymakers or journalists claim to be surprised by things that have been in the public record for longer than a decade, we should treat that as disqualifying. Why do we defer to people who have made a practice yes. and a career out of burying their heads yeah. in the sand? So actually, you did a great job tying together several points uh, that I think are completely intertwined, which is that, you know, like you said, we have this overarching structure of capitalism that controls everyone, even the 1%. Like, I don't know anyone in the 1%. I've never interacted with anyone in the 1%. So it's actually pretty terrifying to hear someone who has say that even they are at the mercy of this system and don't really have as much control as we would like to think that they do. But whether it comes to, like I said, the overarching structure or a tangible organization like the CIA, or the DNC and their complicity in all of this. I think the solution remains the same, which is that direct action and building dual power is the only way to really fight it. And that's why you see the government going after organizations like Food Not Bombs or Occupy or BLM, because that is what is actually effective. And I do want to ask you, I want to try to end it with talking about your work as an activist and an organizer. But real quick, if you would just like to touch on a little bit, like I said, we've talked a bit about the shadowy resistance that you would get from an organization like the CIA and clandestine organizations, intelligence agencies. But can you talk a little bit just about the resistance that you got from the DNC when you made your run against Nancy Pelosi and like what you saw that you could point to as like tactics that they used to stop you from doing anything that would actually help working people and, you know, challenge from the left, the establishment. And then we can end it talking about, like you said, um, your work as an activist and an organizer. Right on. The most sort of, uh, 
I would say, illegitimate and frankly, most decisive measure or step that the, and I wouldn't say the DNC, I would locate this specifically on Nancy Pelosi. The most decisive thing she did was to refuse to debate. And just to make this clear, it wasn't just me. She hasn't debated anyone since your favorite president was in office. Since 1987 was the last time that Nancy Pelosi ever debated anyone. Christ. That's my favorite president. That calls itself democratic. The Democratic Party is led by someone who hasn't answered the voters in 30 years. And if voters understood her record, she wouldn't be in Congress anymore. It is literally that simple because my platform is far and away an object of consensus across San Francisco. The only way she was able to get to Congress was to hide behind layers of, frankly, corporate propaganda that a debate would expose. So that was probably the the most crucial thing. The most insidious thing the thing that lurked in the shadows was sort of the hardest thing to recognize in the moment, but that also played a huge impact in the race was the DCCC blacklist. So this was the decision by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee early in the cycle to blacklist any consultants or staff who worked with candidates challenging entrenched incumbents, people like me. So the DNC said, if you work with people like him, you're never getting a job in Democratic Party politics. And I, that didn't quell me at all. I didn't care. Yeah. But I didn't realize at the time that that set up a very disturbing incentive for staff and consultants of campaigns like mine to basically sabotage the campaigns in the service of the establishment in order to basically serve the careers of those people. So the career interest of even people who might describe themselves as socialists who want opportunities in the establishment to ultimately work against the movement for their own future opportunities. That is a dynamic that, you know, it, I didn't recognize it until, frankly, it expressed itself very viciously. I could tell other stories about, uh, you know, the DNC trying to keep me off the debates, not to the debate stage, but I, I got an opportunity to speak at the Democratic uh, California State Convention in 2020, and that was in the face of some you know, opposition. I could talk a lot about the Democratic clubs in San Francisco. My God. Okay. So some cities have Democratic grassroots, Democratic clubs. San Francisco is so heavily a Democratic town that there are literally dozens of them. And all of them serve the establishment, even the ones that claim to be progressive. And I anticipated that I'd run against the speaker and her supporters, possibly, you know, at least her staff. I didn't anticipate dozens of literally clubs around the city mobilizing to insulate her from critique. And so, you know, one thing I just want to make really explicit here is that any incumbent has the local landscape locked up. When you're talking about the Speaker of the House, who is the spigot of corporate money for the rest of the entire National Party, it's especially true any challenge to an entrenched incumbent entails recruiting support from beyond the district to focus it on shifting a local establishment. And you know that's something that is going to happen because San Francisco's political establishment is beholden to Pelosi in a disturbing way. The voters are not, but they don't have a chance to hear her record. So you know, my project, to the extent we're uh, aiming to liberate the seat in 2022, and I'm preparing now to do that, it's going to entail seeking support, particularly volunteers from around the country, to take the case directly to the voters that the political establishment in San Francisco doesn't want them to hear. Hell yeah. Would you have so? Oh, um, 
I was just going to clarify for our listeners, uh, just because you're talking about, you know, Democratic clubs and this in, in San Francisco, and a lot of our listeners probably don't know what that is. I'm guessing you, you mean like just various uh, organizations. Many of them are chartered through the Democratic okay. Party. So, for instance, there's Every Neighborhood. There's a Richmond Democratic Club. There's a Bernal Heights Democratic Club. There's a Rincon Hill Democratic Club. And then there's clubs that are specific to different kind of communities. Okay. So there's an Alice B. Toklas and the Harvey Milk Democratic Clubs are sort of the moderate and left wing, supposedly left wings of the LGBTQ community. The Rose Pack Democratic Club represents Chinatown. There are many more of them. And so those are kind of the organizations I'm particularly referring to, though even groups that stand outside the Democratic Party apparatus, like the SF Bernie Kratz or Democratic Socialists of America or Progressive Democrats of America, none of those are DNC charter groups, but they all did the same establishment protecting, you know, backroom whispering. What's the point then? What's the point of even having all those organizations that are all just going to serve the same spider monster at the top? Like just, uh. I would say they're the key. And I think there is a profound point in organizing that the danger is allowing people with career aspirations to lead them. Grassroots led organizations have enormous promise. It's where everything good has happened. But in any grassroots organization, they often get co-opted by people seeking opportunities for themselves. And that's what happened in the Bernie Kratz. Uh, you know, a, a chair took over the group who is sort of like, you know, openly self-promoting, recently appointed by the chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party to be a delegate after losing a local election. Uh, that's what happened at DSA, where people seeking you know, establishment careers took over the electoral group and then weaponized DSA against its own interests. And, you know, this is a pattern that I see, not just in San Francisco, it's a pattern anywhere. So I would say that there's profound point in the groups, but we have to be careful for groups to guard themselves from being co-opted by careerism. And I take it like the progressive members, you know, household names, you know, all your squad members, none of them had the, uh, had the gall to step out and show any support. I, I guess that's a pretty big declaration of war against the speaker if they were to do something like that. Well, right. And that's why I ran against Pelosi. I didn't do it because I thought I was going to win. I did it because somebody has to get her the hell out of Congress. Because as long we can flip all the seats in Congress we want, but if Nancy Pelosi remains in Congress, we're not going to get universal health care. Yeah. We're not going to get climate justice. If we're lucky, we'll be fighting for a $15 minimum wage. Right. It'll I mean, only take and 10 it's, years. it's particularly because she runs. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, and we don't have that time. Right. Think about the climate clock and yeah. the UN study. Like we have. We have a short fuse, and the longer we're beholden to corporate rule, and she embodies it to an extent no less than any other member of Congress. And part of this is her leadership style. She doesn't just dole out money across the party. She also turns screws. And the best way, here's my favorite illustration of that. So a whole bunch of people late last year after the election uh, started blaming the squad for not going to the mat to try to force a vote on Medicare for all, right? And the whole time that's happening, I'm watching this, having just faced Pelosi and won 80,000 votes against her, watching all these people waking up to realize that Pelosi is a problem. And, you know, one of my thoughts was, where the hell were all you people two months ago? <laughs> my second thought was, well, and everybody starts blaming the squad, right, for being sellouts. They're not sellouts. They have no power at all. They have a social media pipeline, they can speak to the public, they can reframe the issues, they can expand the Overton window, but at the end of the day, they are under Pelosi's thumb. So what did they do? They felt the need to conciliate, they supported her for the speakership, and she denied them committee assignments anyway, just to rub in who's boss. And that's the figure we're dealing with. 
And so we can flip all the seats we want, and it really isn't going to matter until we get her out of Congress. And that's why I ran against her, because I frankly recognize that she needs to go. I, you know, I looked at the landscape when I got in the race in 2018, and there was no one in whom I could have any confidence. And I recognize that over the course of the last 20 years, because I've helped get the marriage equality movement rolling, and we ended up winning that struggle, it's one of the few things that we can claim to have actually you know, moved forward meaningfully in a relatively dark era over the last 20 years, because I worked at the sort of like apex of the campaign finance reform movement before the Citizens United decision, because I've been fighting mass surveillance for over 10 years, and I have support from across the political spectrum in cities across the country. It was like, I can't not do this. Yeah. And as an immigrant schmo with a pen and no resources, like I saw it as a very steep climb. And, you know, I've heard from any number of people, like, how do you expect to win? Uh, and at the end of the day, I just, I recognize that the future doesn't have a choice. You know, we either figure it out or it's going to be really miserable for a lot of people's kids. And I'm not willing to defer just for the sake of convenience, ultimately. And, you know, if there's anything at the essential root, I can tell, you know, you and I suspect your listeners also are share that kind of sensibility. And I would just encourage people to find every conceivable point of intervention, whether it's, you know, talking to your coworkers at the water cooler after the pandemic's over about, you know, the issues that motivate you, whether it's organizing a mutual aid network in your community, whether it's using online fora to spread information. And I would encourage you to go beyond spreading information and mobilizing to the extent you can. Get Out of Your Chair was the title of my first album, you know, specifically speaking to sort of the allure of clicktivism. You know, there, there are a lot of ingredients in the social change soup and you know we're going to need all of it oh yeah darren would you i just wanted to say like i've really enjoyed hearing this from you that that you're not a proponent necessarily of electoralism but you ran against pelosi and and you knew you were going to lose and fuck it i love that i absolutely love that because that is you know what what you just said about pelosi stripping power away from the squad that's the equivalent to me of Democrats, quote, working across the aisle with Republicans and getting nothing in exchange for it. The system does not give anyone anything in exchange for anything. And I mean, case in point, even with Bernie uh, in Michigan, I'm pretty sure the Edison Research Center said that margin of error counts were like fucking 15, 18 percent. Normal percentages are four. You know, they rat, they rat fucked him. They rat fucked him and published that they rat fucked him <laughs> and nobody did anything. Um, seller. And I think that there is Not such him, a value yeah, right? such All a of us. in people like, like you and even the squad and Bernie and people like that, even though they're not as radical as I would want necessarily, you're getting ideas out to the public that need to be heard and need to be understood as reasonable, rational, mainstream, and realistic. There's no other way to really do this. And I think it's great. It doesn't matter that you lost. I think it's fucking punk rock that you did that. Props, man. Thanks, Norman. Rock on, I appreciate that. Just to, to add to that, I mean, as long as we're, you know, we talked before about all of the things beyond electoralism that have to happen in order for it to have any valence, just to focus them within the square of the electoral arena, a lot of people have this sort of like mistaken impression that it's all about winning seats. And it is ultimately, that's the goal. But there are strategic victories on the way to those tactical ones. And even though we didn't successfully liberate the 12th congressional district seat, we helped push. And in fact, I can count a half a dozen policies that the Speaker of the House abandoned in the face of their critique that she was facing, national policy that shifted 
because of the critique that we mounted. Nancy Pelosi did not support the Protecting Right to Organize Act until we forced her to. She didn't support the Justice and Policing Act until we forced her to. She didn't support saving the post office. She didn't support congressional war powers until we forced her to. And so this idea of forcing incumbents to take different positions, that's a big deal. I just got off the phone about an hour ago with a supporter who uh, was a very active volunteer in our campaign. And we were talking about a great many things. But at the end of the conversation, she shared with me a couple of different projects where she and other volunteers who she met working on our campaign have gone on to do things like fighting for instant runoff voting in different local jurisdictions around the country, a mutual aid effort for another volunteer who oh, they yeah. met who was seeking a transplant. Like the idea that networks come together around electoral campaigns, but then stay engaged in the process of other things. All of these are strategic victories. I, just a quick vignette, one of my proudest moments of the whole cycle in the last year. I remember marching in a picket line. This was with Unite Here, if I remember correctly, Local 2. And I think they were organizing a, yeah, it was a company that was contracting catering services to tech firms, particularly Facebook. And so we're basically mobilizing cafeteria workers. And so we're uh, picketing. There's a supporter with me, young tech professional, military veteran. At one point, he says, wow, this is really exciting. I've never been in a picket line before. <laughs> and my just heart stopped yeah. and leapt. And I was like, oh, my God, and you're here with us now. <laughs> I was like, you just made my day, you know, and like mobilizing people to connect them to struggle yeah. and activating them as their own independent change agents. That's what I'm here yeah. for. And, you know, as much as the general election was on November 2020, we are fighting a fight that stretches beyond any district and beyond any moment in time. And we are part of a timeless struggle that long precedes any of us. And I think our goal in praxis between reflecting on our actions and applying theory is to stand on people's shoulders and to get up taller so that people after us, not me, us, can stand on our shoulders and carry the struggle forward. You know, I, I don't have any illusions that all of these issues are going to be solved within any of our lifetimes. But if we can move the ball forward and hopefully move it fast enough on climate justice to keep people alive, to continue the struggle, you know, then we're doing our jobs. Oh yeah. No, it's really well said. I think that actually wraps it up really nicely. I mean, that was what I wanted to hear was just your, your views on, you know, electoralism versus actual direct action. And I think that puts it really nicely. I mean, even your point about people like the squad was really eye opening for me because I think a lot of people on the left tend to attribute it to their own ambitions. Like they think that people like AOC, um, because I mean, it, it rubs me the wrong way a lot of times when I see someone like AOC tweeting that X or Y policy should be done. And, you know, your first instinct as somebody who's not in power in politics is to say, well, just do it. You know, you're obviously holding an elected uh, office. Why aren't you doing it? Like stop tweeting about it and just go do it. But hearing you talk about just the lack of power that they actually have, even in the position that they're in, because of how powerless establishment is and what they're actually up against. Yeah, that, I mean, that definitely sheds some light on it. And it makes me think about it in a different way because, you know, I think I will be a little less harsh or less quick to judge AOC or, you know, anybody in the squad because that's definitely something I've been guilty of myself. To put it in there, if it helps, sorry, I was just a lot of people blame them for the direction of the bus, but they're not driving it. They're under it. And there is a person driving it. Her name is Nancy Pelosi. And that's, you know, I, I think the you know, concern over the direction of the bus is entirely appropriate, but just recognize whose hands are on the wheel and who's getting run over. You know, Ilhan Omar has a bill that would cancel rents and mortgage payments for the duration of the pandemic. It's as visionary 
Nancy Pelosi owns a shitload of assets in uh, real estate. So that's she is a landlord. <laughs> she is a she is a wealthy landlord. She makes a million dollars a year off rental Jesus income. Christ. Right. And in, in a state where it's right. very difficult to buy property and all, everyone who owns it, like your fucking property tax is locked into nothing. Yeah, she she is a I learned the word actually for for many months. I've been describing her as a centimillionaire, which I recently learned is not the right word because that's actually a misconstruction of the prefix. I guess she's a hectamillionaire, <laughs> but, you know, she's worth over one hundred million dollars. A very wealthy person who's, you know, policymaking defense or class interests predictably. And all I mean to say here is that when we contrast her with the squad, the squad's showing up. They're pulling all their levers. They're introducing bills. They're doing what they can in the committees. And they frankly are getting steamrolled. Even with the addition of Jamal Bowman and Mondaire and Corey, they still don't even have a dozen votes. There's 435 members in the House yeah. alone. And we have frankly no voice in the Senate. So like as much as people and people should be fired up about the squad, but just recognize that like they're going to need some help. And the more we tear them down, I don't know if that's helping them. I, I think we just need to, again, in the same way that we have to recognize the capital is the enemy, we have to also you know, be thoughtful about designating who the targets are. And I do think that the left's tendency to focus fire internally is a problem. We're going to have to get over that if we expect to get anywhere. Just to piggyback off that real quick, because this is a conversation I've had with people a lot just to own the squad and, you know, people making comments like, oh, well, you can already see AOC getting indoctrinated, you know, blah, 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 which, you know, fine. Maybe that's inevitable. Maybe anyone who joins the DNC, you know, inevitably will eventually cross over. But surely that is something that is linear that you can see and if we do pack the DNC with more progressives, with more people, we're packing it with allies. We're buying them time. So if they are inevitably going to be indoctrinated, this gives them more time to try to, you know, rally up before that happens. Because, yeah, like you said, when we have a 500 plus Congress and, you know, I can count the progressives on one hand, what do you really expect them to accomplish? It's really easy just to, you know, write it all off as, oh, we, we shouldn't give a damn you know, we can't convert the DNC. It's like, yeah, because if we keep making that the words that come out of our mouth instead of, you know, we can actually fight on all fronts, we can actually do all this shit and to use the conservatives phrase, we can talk and fucking chew gum at the same time. You know, we can try to put progressives into the DNC while still, you know, fucking reading Marx and all that other good shit. I, I mean, ideally, it's all part of a struggle, right? I mean... I'll try to connect this. So when I was leading the Bill of Rights Defense Committee and the grassroots organizing efforts at EFF, one of the practices that we trained people in was the sort of art of local coalition organizing. So this isn't direct action and it's not electoral. This is sort of in the realm of policy advocacy. And particularly in that phase of my work, focused on trying to restrain police departments and their surveillance activities. And the point of striking beyond the target you know, sort of identifying an a policy opportunity, mobilizing, hosting community meetings, doing direct actions, petition campaigns, whatever you needed to, to get it on the radar screen of some local official, getting it introduced, and then fighting for that bill to be passed just to, frankly, in that phase, just establish a process threshold to intervene when future technology platforms would be acquired. So it's, it's several stages, right? The point here that I'm just laying out is that community organizing, when I don't want to say paired with an institutional process, that inside-outside traditional formulation. I would say when the community organizing stretches and strikes beyond the internal 
policy making process. That's when the action happens. So a lot of times you'll see indivisible, for instance, as an example of this, it was a group that spent a lot of time figuring out what the congressional aspirations were of sort of centrist, center left members of Congress, and then organizing grassroots people to clamor for it and make calls and back up the inside game. The external outside grassroots work, it shouldn't back up the inside actors. It should be creating cover for the inside actors. I go back to A. Philip Randolph and FDR, right? When he says, you know, like, I don't, can't even remember what the re- precise reform was at the time, something labor regarding, but the apocryphal saying is, you know, A. Philip Randolph goes to FDR and FDR says, you know, I agree with you. Now make me do it. <laughs> That's the job of the outside is to make the policymakers show up for work. And if they don't, shame them and replace yeah. them. You know, we shouldn't be taking our cues from Washington. We should be setting the cues for Washington. And that's exactly what the movement for Black Lives did, right? Why are we talking about ending qualified immunity? I proposed it in 2018. It was not an object of national conversation until the movement put it there. Why is anybody even talking about abolishing ICE and finding a better institutional framework to facilitate immigration? Because the movement put it there. It's when the movement refuses to accept the guardrails for the political debate that the establishment constructs and through direct action and policy advocacy and grassroots organizing and discussion and public education and all those tools expands the Overton window to create cover for inside actors to then institutionalize those norms. That's, you know, at least one part of the way in which they fit. And I see entirely too many grassroots actors either if they do engage, take their cues from the inside, which is inherently disempowering, or just disengage altogether, whether due you know, to nihilism or a perception you know, that it's just an infertile landscape. Uh, but there is very much a productive dynamic that can happen between the two. And I think the key is grassroots leadership, not the leadership of careerists and not the leadership of policymakers. Policymakers will follow Maybe I'll leave it at this and then I'll shut up and, and, and maybe we could talk another time. But, you know, just thinking about this administration, I have no hope. I have no trust in Joe Biden. I have no trust in Kamala Harris, but I have hope in her, not in her, but in the fact that she's a weather vane. If there's anything she's proven, it's that she doesn't have very deep commitments and she'll go which way the wind blows. That's, that's an, an opportunity. We, not me, us. Say that's, a, that's an interesting take that's accurate that I hadn't really considered. But let me ask you this. Yeah, we, would you, we blow the wind. Would you say Joe Biden has, you know, uh, uh, healed the soul of our nation, though? <laughs> Fuck. I, you know, Joe, Joe Biden is, is Ronald Reagan with a different letter after. <laughs> with dementia. Mm. Jesus no, I think, Christ. I think you really tied that all together very well. Yeah. I think that should be the main message that people take from hearing this is obviously being confronted once again with the at the very best, the inefficacy of the Democratic Party, but at the what is really the case is their complicity in all of this. Um, but they should take from that not to just become despondent and just give up and throw their hands up in the air, but to then let that motivate them into direct action, building the dual power, becoming activists and organizers, joining whatever organization is in their neighborhood, doing the, the actual groundwork that needs to be done to push these politicians in the direction we need them to go. Like we desperately need them to go or, you know, because our, our future literally depends on it. Um, so we can wrap that up. Or recruit someone from your organization to replace them. Like it's, you know, it's not just pushing the ones there. It's in the course of that organizing. You're going to identify and grow and cultivate leaders who will be the ones to replace those people yeah. who don't show up, right? So it's all part of a process. Hell yeah. Absolutely. Hell yeah. So yeah, we can wrap it up there. Uh, unless there's anything else that you wanted to talk about or if any, uh, did anybody else have anything quick they want to, Jaren, what you got? 
we can actually cut this out, but I just wanted to share an anecdote with you. So this just kind of struck me when I was reading through, we have a paste bin here that kind of outlines, you know, how the show is going to go. But, you know, when you were fighting for gay rights in the early 2000s, I didn't graduate high school until 2007. And then fast forward <laughs> a couple of years um, in 2013, I was touring as the drummer for the Indigo Girls. And the, uh, right I remember the day that Doma fell. We were in uh, Pennsylvania and everyone knew it was going to happen. And dude, like you would not believe the energy in that room when it got announced. And, you know, at that time I was a baby leftist. I, you know, all I knew is I was disenfranchised and I hated shit. Um, (laughs) I really loved that that moment. That moment was so beautiful and it it stuck with me. I've never seen so many people laughing and crying and kissing and like, it, it was just electric in that room. And that's to your point, like that would have never happened if you had not been doing what you were doing while I was a freshman in high school and I didn't know shit from Shinola. And then I see the synthesis of it years later. Like that's, to me, that's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Please don't cut it out of the podcast, first of all, because I think that was a a great anecdote to share. And and to be clear, like I didn't start anything. Like I I represented a mayor. I'll just tell this story real quick and then I will sign off and and appreciate all your work. I I might drop our website to the extent any of your... uh, Right on. I'm just going to tell a quick story. Like I'll try to make this like a minute or two about the New Paltz litigation. So in, um, I was a baby lawyer in Washington. I'm speaking at a conference. It was the National Conference on Organized Resistance. It was an anarchist conference. It happened every year at American University. And I was speaking about organizing hip-hop artists and spoken word MCs to reclaim public space because we'd been doing it in San Francisco. I started a group at Stanford. It's still active, which I'm very proud. And we just started doing this in D.C. Started a group called the D.C. Guerrilla Poetry Insurgency. And so, you know, we were taking over trains in public parks, mostly like anti-war stuff at the time. This was early in the Iraq, just after the invasion of Iraq. So I'm talking on this panel about hip hop artists. There's another guy on the panel from New Paltz, New York, talking about puppets, street puppets. He built paper mache, you know, big puppets. And he, he closes his remarks talking about how he and a bunch of other grad students at SUNY New Paltz organized a Green Party slate to run for election. And they swept the offices. They swept the mayor's office, the town clerk. Uh, there was the vice mayor's office. And so this guy on the panel was the mayor of his town, 26 years old, I think, oh at the time. God. Jason West is his name. He's the only person in the country who faced criminal prosecution for supporting the right of consenting adults to marry a partner of their choice. And you know, one of the things that's interesting to me in retrospect, the ACLU, Lambda, Human Rights Campaign, every organized group pursuing LGBTQ interests said, don't file these cases because you're going to lose. And we said, we know. That's why we're going to keep them in state court. Only the right wing doesn't worry about what happens if they win. You see what I'm saying? This was sort of the same pattern of, of liberal deference. And, yeah. you know, they were worried about how it was going to play in public. And people blamed us for losing the 2004 election, though I would put that blame squarely at the feet of the New York Times for reasons we could discuss. But I'm very proud in the era of our work to have gotten a snowball rolling that culminated in the realization of rights for a community that on the one hand had been marginalized. On the other hand, here in San Francisco, the gay community has emerged as one of the most conservative communities in the city. It was the gay district, D8, that by the heaviest margin voted for Pelosi in the last cycle. And, you know, it's striking to me the propensity of groups to abandon their own interests or to ignore history. I mean, the progressive LGBTQ Democratic Club in San Francisco endorsed Pelosi 
just to be clear that's what we're dealing with along with every labor union in the city oh right so when i was talking about me you know confronting a landscape beyond the speaker that's what i'm talking about yeah Uh, seriously it's you know we have our work cut sterling just made the same right that was like arizona when you know bernie was just running this last time and the arizona unions were coming out against him because they would lose their health care if medicare for all got implemented and i'm like what (laughs) like we fought so hard for the same thing as this idea of the dilution of the health care interest it reminds me of you know, heterosexual married couples worrying about what was going to happen to the sanctity of their bond once gay people could share it too. Uh, yeah, Jeez. so many things. I, I really appreciate you all bringing me on. I'll, just a quick shout out for uh, any of your listeners who, you know, want to stay in touch. Yeah. I'm on all the social media platforms, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. As of just this week, Clubhouse at Shahid for Change. And our website where anybody's welcome to sign up to volunteer or if you're moved to... Uh, get the ball rolling to help us uh, relaunch in 2022. I'd love to have your support. You can find us at shahidforchange.us. Hell yeah. Now you said you, you launched what in 2022? I haven't launched anything yet, but I'm preparing. Oh, I'm exploring the possibility of running again in 2022. And you know, part of what that entails is, is recruiting support yeah. so I can you know pull a team together and, and relaunch. So I'm not quite there yeah. yet, but the ball is rolling. We definitely got support here. Right on, right on. I'm, I'm so glad to connect with you all. You have some uh, great questions and great perspectives, and I'm looking forward to staying connected. Awesome. We'd love to join you all again. Absolutely, man. It's been so cool. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate you doing it. Absolutely. We're all in this together, homie. Right on. Solidarity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Keep well, up. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care, Shahid. And I think we'll sign off for the night. Thank you, everyone. See you again, man. See you all next time. Right on. Peace, y'all. So even beyond being an activist, community organizer, and congressional candidate, uh, Shahid also makes music. We have one of his tracks that you can listen to. Um, It's coming up in just a moment. And you can also follow him on SoundCloud to keep up with any of his new releases. This is called Ferguson to Jerusalem. From Ferguson to Jerusalem. Ferguson to Jerusalem, from Ferguson to Jerusalem, the criminals have badges. Palestine, 
folks are on the front line. A massacre, the Nakba, gave rise in time to all the crimes that you might now find. Three quarters of a million refugees on the run. Exodus, people chased by guns. Peoples of the book, allegiance is undone after a thousand years of solidarity, son. Brothers killing each other. What's the function? Supporting leaders with no compunction. Destroying everywhere, every town, every junction. Careerists, institutional corruption from Tel Aviv all the way back to Langley. A millennium, Jews, Muslims, one family, colonial schemes to root tragedy and history. Across the globe, authorities claim security, but peace need not be a fantasy for anybody. From Ferguson to Jerusalem. Ferguson to Jerusalem. From Ferguson to Jerusalem. The criminals have badges and guns from Ferguson to Jerusalem to Washington. Houston, we have a problem for housing, education, not enough funds because we pay the real criminals with badges and guns. From Ferguson to Jerusalem. The criminals have badges. Weapons in the hands of Israelis infect a whole region with imperial rabies. Diseases driving, regimes crazy, serving a hegemon, by killing babies, not just abroad, but across the U.S. Weapons used in Palestine by the IDF end up all over the world, where else? To your right and left, all over U.S. streets, like the CIA, an enemy of peace undermining human rights from the West to East. A beast like all police intelligence agencies, feast of death, medical emergencies. I'm here to help you feel a little urgency, to connect seemingly separate dots internationally, help you see how we all humanity share the same interest in restraining police. We're a family, like all others. Cain and Abel murdering our own brothers. Police act with impunity. Their druthers abuse while claiming to protect and serve others. Paramilitary serving corporate bosses. Communities forced to bear crosses. Innocent people gunned down every day. Dance, have fun now, but don't turn away. Tomorrow offers crucial opportunities to support any of the many communities targeted by authorities around the planet. Revolution needs to happen. Help plan it. Just...